Hey everybody, it's me, Erica. And Rachel. And you are listening to episode 25 of Story Crime. Woo! Cheers, Erica! So, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I am good. I'm feeling great. I've been having really good days lately. And I think so, I'm just really excited for this new job. I am still very excited for you. I've been having some really good days too, aside from the fact that I'm still sick and I, I can't seem to shake it, but I'm in like the tired phase now mm. of just being chronically tired. <laughs> so, but otherwise it's been good. Well, good. I hope you're on the mend soon, because I need you back to 100. (laughs) I need myself back to 100. Those little babies at work are like, they drive you bananas when you're just not feeling fully rested. You know what I mean? Oh, I know what you mean. They're cute, but they're fast, and they overpower you. Are endless. (laughs) Anyways, I was talking with Rob. I... I think I've told you this, that I don't watch the news that often. And so I actually got a message from my mom and it was just a video of like a crazy storm. And I was like, at first I was like, holy shit, what's happening where my parents live who are just an hour away from us. <laughs> and then she clarified, no, no, this is in PEI. This is my uncle and aunt live in PEI, yeah. Prince Edward Island for people who aren't Canadian. Apparently there's a hurricane going on there. Oh, and yeah. I think I was the last one to know about this. Yeah, I have family in Nova Scotia, and um, they were ready. They said they had their generators, extra gas. Everyone was mm-hmm. ready and prepared. So it's a big one. But, like, there's hurricanes everywhere, it seems. Yeah, I know. It's a hurricane season, I think, happening. It's true. I, I actually was uh, – because I'm pretty sure in Florida they're getting ready for a hurricane. Is that Yeah, correct? there's one hitting, like, Miami any day now, I think. Yeah, so we just had a family come back from Orlando. So I was like, thank God they came back when they did mm-hmm. because they could have been stuck, and they were driving, right? So, um, but. And what, uh, my, Puerto Rico had Puerto one? Puerto Rico is really bad, too. It's the same one that's hitting the east coast of Canada. Oh, so. is it? Yeah. What? Apparently, like, my all of my family that's over there is fine, which is yeah. good. But, like, yeah. a lot of, like, historical landmarks in PEI were just, boof, gone. Really? Crap. What's God. this one's name? Um, Fiona, I Fiona. think. Fiona. Yeah. Yeah, is that, I, and it's the name the same as the one in Miami? Is it the same one? I don't know if it's the same one. Mm. I I don't know. I know it's the same one in Puerto Rico. Yeah. For sure. Fiona's the same one. But I don't know. I don't know about Hmm. Miami. So what would it be named? Like Georgia or something? (laughs) What's it? What's alphabetical? Is it alphabetical? I I don't know if it's alphabetical actually anymore because and I don't even know how they pick the names. Yeah. And why are they all female? And is there yes, I was gonna say, is there male hurricanes? Because I don't know. I don't think so. No. Because there's Irene, Katrina. Why are they all female? Are there males? You need to Google this. I'm gonna look it up. Hold on one moment. Oh, feminine named hurricanes versus masculine named hurricanes cause significantly more deaths. Oh, shit. Apparently because they lead to lower perceived risk and consequently less preparedness. We're like sneaking up on you. No, it's just just like a typical typical woman. Yeah. Just don't undermine us. Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, here we go. U.S. hurricanes used to be given only female names, a practice that meteorologists of a different era considered appropriate due to such characteristics of hurricanes as unpredictable. (laughs) (laughs) The practice came to an end in the late 1970s with increasing societal awareness of sexism and an alternating (laughs) male-female naming system was adopted. So they got canceled. You're kidding me. So they were like, you know what? These stores, they remind me a lot like women. You're <laughs> They're quite very, unpredictable. Very unpredictable and, and a little erratic. <laughs> and they'll Even, take your whole house if you're not careful. Exactly. <laughs> I cannot believe that that's a thing. I cannot oh. believe that that is actually a thing either. Uh, research shows that women and men are socialized to have different social roles and self schemas, in turn generating descriptive and prescriptive expectant- expectancies about women and men. Like we will fuck your like, whole shit up. I don't even know what I'm reading here. Like what <laughs> article this is from? Penis. You know, <laughs> the what? literal <laughs> website is called Penis, but not like Penis. P N A S. Okay, now I get it. This all makes so much more sense. I'm not even shitting you. Look at the, can you see the, oh, you probably can in the camera. Oh, yes. Penis. Penis. <laughs> that's why this is just a joke they're playing on me, maybe. Oh, my God. That's that so funny. That makes me laugh so much. Wow, this hurricane doesn't seem so big. Oh, yeah, fuck around, find out. <laughs> <laughs> actually don't know how they're named and i don't really feel like looking it up because i really no. like how penis uh, <laughs> i'm sticking with that, that. yeah i am i'm perfectly yeah. happy um can i just say what i noticed just now so i paused the show i was watching to um record with you right now and i'm mm-hmm. obviously i'm watching real housewives of beverly hills because oh. i'm obsessed and okay. the episode right now that i paused on is called hurricane camille how freaking weird is that well, I just want to know who Camille is, how Camille, unpredictable is she Camille is. Camille Grammer. She's very unpredictable, and she's going off on the ladies in this episode. And it's like season nine, episode 21. Very random number <laughs> to stop on. And it's Hurricane. I'm just full circle. Well, there you go. Well, I love it. with that, I, I will say that our hearts go to anyone who's lost a significant yes. chunk of their life right now because of this hurricane. Um we're thinking of you and we hope that everybody is safe and sound and, and taking care of each other over there. So, yes. Well, with that, we're going to get right into the story today. Okay. What do you got for us? Well, we are going to be talking about two serial killers. Um, they were a serial killing team, if you will, in the 1970s, the golden era in California, the place with all the serial killers back then. Um, and they are called the Toolbox Killers. The Toolbox Killers. So, yeah. like I said, they were two American serial killers, and their names were Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. And just to give you a little bit of insight into these guys, OG, like, one of the very first FBI profilers in Quantico at the Behavioral Analysis Unit, John Douglas, he once described Lawrence Bittaker as the most disturbed individual that he has ever profiled. Really? Stephen These K. are like the criminal minds people. Yeah. So John Douglas uh, basically was one of the guys, I think he wrote Mindhunter. 
like the book that the show was based on he is like the one of the original guys to do that fbi profiling at the beginning and this guy was one of the most disturbed he's ever met yes jesus and and you'll see why as we get into this (laughs) awesome um stephen k who was the da that uh prosecuted the trial for uh lawrence bitterker and roy norris he said that he had nightmares for years following the following the case and a detective by the name of Paul Bynum, he was the lead detective on the case. He would later actually end up taking his own life because he oh. was haunted by the thought that one day Lawrence Bitterker would be released and come after his wife and child. And he oh thought gosh. that if he killed himself, it would spare their lives. Oh, my gosh. The crimes they committed against the young, young women in this case are so horrifying that right now, because I am going to give some details here. Right off the bat, I want to give a warning to those who might need it that we're going to be talking about torture, abuse, rape, kidnapping, murder, all of the above, and and it could be really triggering for some people. So if this isn't for you, by all means, you know, join us next time. See you next time. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. So when we to start this off, we're going to start talking about the um, two murderers in this case. And we're firstly going to be talking about Lawrence Bitterker. Now, I'm probably going to refer to him just as Bitterker for most of this because cool. I like the way it sounds. It's yeah. In my mouth. Rolls right out. Fun thing tongue. to say. Bitterker. Uh, Lawrence Bitterker, he was born on September 27th, 1940, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dude, that's today. Is it? Yeah. Oh, well, no happy birthday for him. No. I hate him. Fuck your birthday. That's weird. I did not notice that. Whoa. <laughs> that was not planned. <laughs> Alrighty. Unfortunately for little baby Lawrence, his biological parents weren't prepared for parenthood and gave him up for adoption almost immediately after he was born. Mm. He would quickly be adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker as an infant. Now, don't know the woman's name. Don't know the mother's name. Sorry, couldn't find it. I did many Google searches and dive deep, and there was just no record of who this was. So, so Mama Bitteker? Mama Bitteker. They don't really come up too much in this because, as we'll find out, he would be disowned by them. Oh. Yeah. His father, George, he worked in an aircraft factory, and his job would would require the family to move frequently around the U.S., mm-hmm. so they would relocate from Pennsylvania to Florida, Ohio, and then finally they would settle in California. Bitterker's first run-ins with the law started when he was just 12 years old. He was caught and arrested for shoplifting, but his early arrest would not do much in a way to sway his delinquent behavior, and he would continue to steal throughout his entire adolescence, resulting in many more arrests as time went on. Bitterker would later say in interviews that he committed these petty crimes to compensate for the fact that he felt that his parents didn't show him love. Oh, so he just wanted that attention. And in the book I read about this, they said they're ne- they were never sure if he was talking about his adoptive parents or his biological parents, but uh, probably both. Because, probably both. And because he was so young during these times, this time, like 12 years old, they're assuming that he was doing these things for attention. So most likely the adoptive parents, but it could yeah. go either way. Now, Bitterker was an extremely smart individual with an IQ of 138. Holy crap. Well, wait, what's a good IQ? Like, what is that is a good IQ? What is our IQ? <laughs> I don't know. I always say it's brown, but the um, <laughs> for me, not you, you're probably smarter than I am. No, I'm like the fact that I found that so funny, it's likely brown too. <laughs> yeah, um, the 
I think the average IQ is between 81 and 114. So 138 is like amazing. Genius. Genius. Yeah. You're going to look it up? Yeah. I need to know average IQ. Look at us. Information station today. Well, when you're not prepared with this information right off the hop, what else can you do? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, we're providing lots of information today. Average IQ is 100. Oh, okay. So there you go. I mean, according to www.testiq.org okay. and okay. test IQ, oh, IQ tester as well said that. Mm, maybe I should do an IQ test after this and then we can finally rule out Brown. <laughs> should we do that right now? <laughs> Guys, we're taking a break. I know we're Aww. only a paragraph in, but we're going to do this. Just we come back. Okay, so it turns out we're stupid. Let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> I choose not to share my results, actually. Just kidding. That was a false alarm. We didn't take it. Yeah. <laughs> We're not sharing. <laughs> However, uh, Lawrence Bitterker's academic smarts would do nothing to keep him out of trouble or in school because he would drop out of high school before even graduating, saying that school was tedious for him and he was often bored by the lessons, which is really common with people with high IQs anyways. So yeah. I'm not surprised by that. Absolutely not. Instead of trying to find work to support himself after leaving school, Bitterker would instead choose to make money through more nefarious means. They always do. Mm-hmm. After dropping out of high school, a 17-year-old Bitterker would be arrested for a variety of different offenses, including a hit-and-run, auto theft, and evading arrest. A hit-and-run? That's pretty serious. At this point, though, I, I don't think that that hit-and-run... They weren't specific. I don't think anyone died. Okay. Yeah. Good. He would be convicted of these offenses and sent to the California Youth Authority, where he would remain until he turned 19 years old. So only two years. Within days of his release, Bitteker was quickly arrested by the FBI for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. Hmm. In August of 1959, he was found guilty on these charges and sent to a federal reformatory in Oklahoma. He was given an 18-month sentence for that. While serving this sentence, Bitterker would eventually be transferred to a medical center in Springfield, Missouri, and released after serving only two-thirds of his sentence. And oh. I'm not sure why he got sent to this medical center. All it said was because of behaviors. Oh. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious, too. In December of 1960, Bitterker was arrested again, this time for robbery, and in May of 1961... He was convicted and sentenced to one to 15 years in state prison, which is quite a gap. Just saying. <laughs> you all right, you can serve sir. one or 15. I, you're either here for one or 15 years. <laughs> we we really gonna, don't know what it's going we're to gonna be. We're going to rush and roulette this one and spin the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> While serving the sentence, Bitteker was evaluated by a psychiatrist. The evaluation concluded that Bitteker had considerable concealed hostility and was also very manipulative. He was also deemed to be paranoid and borderline psychotic. A year later, the psychiatrist added that Bitteker had poor control over impulse behavior. And despite this mounting mental health issues, Bitteker was granted early parole in 1963 after only serving one sixth of his sentence. I mean, makes borderline sense. psychotic. So let's <laughs> yeah. put him back out there. Let's, let's just give him a see chance. how he goes. You know, yeah. round two. Uh, he would be arrested for violating his parole after only two months of being released. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And for the suspicion that he had been involved in a robbery. So that's what, yeah. Hmm. What's one sixth of 15 years? 
I mean, that's, I'm not going to Google it. I'm not going to, no. but like, that's that not it was a very short very amount. No, yeah. it was a very short amount of time. He would be sent back to prison in October of 1964 after violating his parole and committing that robbery that I just said. So in 1966, Bitterger was once again evaluated by a psychiatrist. And during the assessment, he stated that stealing made him feel important and that hmm. the crimes he committed resulted in circumstances that just, or they were a result of circumstances that just weren't his fault. Hmm. So stealing makes Fair. me feel important. But the reasons I'm doing these crimes are not my fault, is what he's... I mean, if inflation has taught us anything. True, yeah. (laughs) He would receive a second diagnosis of borderline psychosis, only to be released again back into the public. So he's had two diagnoses of borderline psychosis, and they're just like, third time's a charm. Yeah. Not to worry, though, because he would be placed back in jail Mm. not long after due to more parole violations. Right. Sorry if I sound like a broken record during this, because he goes to jail a lot. (laughs) When he was released the next time, he would be again rearrested after leaving the scene of an accident and a theft. He would be given a five-year sentence and was released in April of 1970 after only serving three of the five years. He would violate his parole conditions a year later and received a sentence of six months to 15 years. (laughs) (laughs) That's even worse. You could either be months. For 15 years. Yeah. I mean, it's up to you. Clearly, he's going to pick six months and he's going to be back out. Well, back I, don't think he pick, I don't think he picks the sentence, no, but it, the sentence is anywhere between six months to 15 years. It's under I was But wouldn't that be nice if they could pick? <laughs> <laughs> I would hope you're joking because I'm like, I, I changed my mind. Your IQ is brown. <laughs> my IQ is teal. <laughs> okay. But uh, he would only serve three years of that sentence and would be released once again in 1974. Now, his next crime would be the first violent crime that he was known to commit. He had gone to a supermarket and attempted to steal a steak, and he did this by sticking the steak down his trousers. What is he, Aladdin? Right? Street rat? <laughs> Been there. Done that. Done that. <laughs> what approach for this guy. <laughs> When approached in the parking lot by a store employee, he stabbed him in the chest. Oh, God. He was charged with attempted murder and shoplifting, but would end up being convicted with assault with a deadly weapon. Now, the store employee luckily did survive. Oh, And he was lucky to, um, because it was quite a vicious stabbing, so. Hmm. He would be sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo psychiatrists had warned the justice system about Bitteker's mental health issues before trial and while he and during the time that he was in prison but despite this in November of 1978 he was released again however during his time in the men's colony Lawrence Bitteker would make a new friend and it's called a men's colony yes it's his prison it's the men's colony of the prison I don't know, Rachel. I'm just okay. No, I'm just never heard that term before, but it sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, during his time in the men's colony, though, Lawrence would make a new best friend, and this friend's name was Roy Lawrence. Norris. Hmm. Car. <laughs> Such sound effects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Roy no- Norris was born on February 5th, 1948, in Greeley, Colorado, to unmarried parents. His parents married shortly after he was born, but always blamed their firstborn son for their unhappiness. 
They would constantly remind him that he wasn't a wanted child and that they only married to avoid the stigma of having a, a bastard. Yeah, a bastard. Um, but wow, his parents are like, P.S., we don't love you. Yeah, we don't want you. We never wanted you. Yeah, that's a terrible. Like, yeah. Oh Roy's my God, mother, they're awful. Yeah, so. they are not nice. Not a lot of nice people involved in this half mm. with these guys. So Roy's mother suffered from a drug addiction and mental illness, and this would be a major impact on Roy growing up. Roy would be placed in various foster homes throughout his childhood. Now, these foster homes are located fairly close to where he lived, so he would move back and forth between the foster homes and oh, with his biological family. Gosh. Terrible. And, yeah. Unfortunately for young Roy, in both the foster care system and in his family home, he suffered from extreme neglect and abuse. Mm -hmm. He would later claim that there was barely enough food or clothing, and his parents would also accuse Roy of doing things that he hadn't, resulting in punishments from his family on a regular basis. At These one point... Kids. Yeah. At one point, Norris was placed in a home with a Hispanic family. He later claimed that while in the care of this family, he suffered sexual abuse at the hands of somebody in the home, although he never specified who the actual abuser was. He did state, though, that this abuse is what created his lasting hatred of the entire Hispanic race. Oh. So cool. he, he talks about this in interviews later on. But yeah, he just always, from that point on, because of whatever happened to him there. Mm -hmm. it's believed that whatever the abuse was that he suffered is what started the development of his sadistic sexual fantasies that would intensify throughout the rest of his life. Hmm. When Norris was 16 years old and living with his parents, his biological parents, he went to visit a female relative and this relative, she was in her twenties. And during this visit, allegedly Norris started to talk to her in an extremely sexual manner. The relative was horrified and kicked Norris out of her house and called his father. Oh. Now, his father would threaten to beat the hell out of Norris. And to avoid getting the beating, Roy ran out, stole his father's car, and drove it to the Rocky Mountains. He oh. then attempted to take his own life by injecting air bubbles into his arm. How? What? How? He had, like, what a syringe hell? and would try to inject just, like, air into his veins. Where the hell did he get the syringe? I don't know. It's... Where, when is this? The 50s? He, he just had one. I mean, the 50s are a wild time. There's they just syringes everywhere. <laughs> syringes on every street corner. Um, <laughs> he would then attempt to take his own life, so he did that. Unfortunately, he was unsuccessful and was late, unfortunately, for future times. Not that time. Hmm. But unfortunately, he was unsuccessful and was later found by the police who returned him to his family home. And boy, this is why I clarified that, is because if he had been successful... What comes later probably would have never came. Okay. It would have never happened. Yeah. Upon his return, Norris's parents told him that neither he or his sister, who there's not any information about his sister out there. I'm hoping that she is living her best life and was, you know, not impacted. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's well. trauma there, but go live your best life away from Roy Norris as being your brother ever. So... Uh, but yeah, they told, his parents told him that neither he or his sister were wanted children and that they planned to divorce as soon as the children reached adolescence. Wow. Yeah. Hearing this over and over in his life caused, of course, a lot of mental trauma for Norris. Mm -hmm. And he looked at it as the greatest rejection he ever faced in his life. Of course, it is the greatest rejection. I of mean. Course. Like, I'm not surprised at that. Yeah. At all. It shouldn't even have to be said, but. Wow. 
in the, you know, spirit of thoroughness, threw mm. that in. A year after Norris attempted suicide, he dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. Between 1965 and 1969, Norris was stationed in San Diego as an electrician before eventually being deployed to Vietnam. He would spend four months in Vietnam, but he didn't actually see any active combat during this time. However, just because he didn't see combat himself, of course, we know many soldiers in his position would still be exposed to stories, Mm -hmm. pictures, graphic descriptions of events that fellow soldiers in combat would share with each other. Mm And there was also stories of the treatment of Vietnamese women during the war by servicemen, which Norris absolutely heard stories about. And I'm not convinced didn't participate in because he is an absolute piece of garbage. And I could see him taking advantage of that situation that he was in down in Vietnam. Oh, 100%. I'm sure even if he only heard one story about somebody getting away with it, that he would have been on that. Yeah. Now, that's just... Oh, 100%. And that's just me speculating. That's just my opinion. I don't think I'd be far off the mark to say that. No. One thing is for sure about his time in Vietnam, and that is that Norris discovered drugs over there, mainly pot and heroin. Oh, he fun. quickly be- I And this happened with a lot of soldiers. Became oh, yeah. addicted while they were over in Vietnam. But he also became quickly addicted. And in that same year, 1969, he would be sent back to the United States. He would then soon later be discharged from the Navy on psychological grounds after he began attacking women. So for sure, he was doing that over there. Yeah. I yeah. mean. That's I, probably where I he's just, like learned the stealthiness. The the yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was after his discharge from the military that Norris's life of crime really began to take off. So unlike Bittaker, who was involved in mostly robberies, nonviolent crimes leading up to the Paris meeting in prison. Norris would go straight to committing some of the most vile crimes against women women that one could imagine. In the first month after being discharged from the military, Norris forced his way into a taxi that was being driven by a female driver and attempted to rape her. What? He was arrested fairly fairly quickly. He didn't get he didn't rape her. So he was arrested fairly quickly after and was charged with attempted rape. However, he was soon released on bail. Oh, yeah, because in the 60s or 69, it's attempted rape. Yeah, they didn't rape her. Nothing happened. Yeah, and they definitely didn't take rape seriously in any capacity back then. So just three months later, in February of 1970, he attacked another woman after he tried to convince her to let him in her house. So just like, yo. Knocking on your door. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, can I come in? And she's like, no. No. And he's like, okay, well, then I'm going to break in. So the police were called. He never made it into the house, thankfully. He was arrested before any harm could come to the woman. Jeez. Good. Later that year in May, Norris followed a young student at San Diego University. Oh, no. He he approached her from behind and started to attack her with a rock, striking her in the back of the head several times until she fell down. He then bashed her head into the concrete sidewalk over and over again. (sighs) And somehow, and thankfully, the woman survived this vicious attack. Oh, gosh. Norris would be arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He would be sentenced to five years to be served at the Atascadero State Hospital due to psychiatric assessments that deemed him to have a severe schizoid personality. Okay, but like, can we just pause for a second and reflect on the other cases that had documents and history of mental illness? And this guy gets placed in a hospital after his, like, what, first attempt? Like... Yeah. Blows my mind. You have to, you have to literally it's, rip your eyes out. Are you talking about like 
like Andre yeah. Thomas. Yeah. I'm just, and ugh. I think it's um, where we are and who the people are. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. It's racism, systemic racism, all of it. And it's also, re- like, it's just wild when you compare them side by side like that. It is. And it's it, it also depends on the police force, too, right? The police department varies. And like, the judges. County to county, state to yeah. state, the, all of that. It, it, that's what really p- makes a big difference. So 100%. Wow. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, they put him in. It didn't do any good because in 1975, Norris was released from the hospital and given five years probation. Hmm. They also said that he was no longer a danger to society at this point. He had, like, recovered. You're fucking cured. However, three months later, Norris would strike again. You're not cured. (laughs) This time, he would attack a 27-year-old woman who was walking home in Redondo Beach. He offered her a ride on his motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And when she said, no, thanks. He parked and grabbed a hold of her scarf. He twisted it around her throat and told her he was going to rape her before dragging her into the bushes and making good on his threat. Wow. He's a real piece of shit. He's garbage and scary. And this case scares me. I just not a lot of cases scare me. And like, spoiler alert, both of these men are dead and I'm still terrified of them. Yeah. Just so you know. Yeah, we're going to have to debrief after so that I know that you're okay after doing all this research. The woman reported the rape to the police, but it would take nearly one, nearly a whole month before Norris was apprehended. Mm -hmm. The woman just happened to spot Norris on his motorcycle one night when he was driving around and she was actually able to take down his license plate number. Wow. Good for her. That's a sense of bravery that like, I don't know if I would have that in me, you know, like, yeah, that's wow. He was subsequently arrested and charged. He was convicted a year later and sent to the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo, where guess who else was there? Lawrence Bittaker. Bittaker. So Bittaker would say that when he first met Norris, he thought him to be very savvy. Hmm. Sure. Norris would mostly associate with inmates from motorcycle gangs when he first arrived at prison, and he was also involved in dealing drugs there. But eventually the two men would start talking and would slowly become close acquaintances. Now, in the book I read, they said that it's really weird that they were even in the same area colony? of the prison. Well, in the same area of the prison of the of the men's colony, because uh, Roy Norris was a sex offender and a rapist. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Lawrence Bittaker was mostly petty crime. Sure, he stabbed that guy at the, at the supermarket. But other than that, his crimes are fairly nonviolent and they definitely weren't sexual in nature. And they usually try to segregate because people who commit sex offenses and rape and, and stuff like that they're targeted more by other prisoners oh, and so course. having them yeah you're gonna get area, your ass kicked yeah so having them in it mixed in an area with somebody like lawrence bitterker could have been dangerous for for roy norris not that yeah we should necessarily care about the safety of roy norris but and that's legal, why it, from a legal standpoint that's kind of how they usually do it so it's very strange that they were actually in yeah. that part of the prison together yeah. to meet and that's what pisses me off about like how child rapists get witness protection or whatever that protection is not witness protection but the uh protection i know, I know and, what you mean it's the yeah i know what you mean i, I can't yeah. think of the term for it right now and it's like what no get your ass kicked yeah. like i'm all for revisit re- re- i can never say this recidivism word. recidivism i'm all yeah. for it but for a child rapist mm-mm, honey you're getting your ass kicked and you're getting your ass kicked every fucking Day. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned that because in the case we're going to cover next week, we talk a lot about 
we don't talk a lot about it, but the, it does come up. Um, recidivism? Not, recidiv- not recidivism, but the, um, that what you're talking about, child molesters and, and people yeah. that are sex offenders against children and, and, and just their ability to recover and whether or not that's possible. So we'll save that for next week, but it's funny that you brought that up because it is something that we're going to be talking Foreshadowing. about. Foreshadowing. So. Stay tuned next yeah. week to hear the rest yeah. of that. <laughs> so yeah, so it was really weird that they were together, but fa- as fate would have it, the stars aligned. Here they some, are. For some, cru- uh, some kind of cruel joke, the universe brought Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris together. What to the Matrix. Colony. Exactly. Now, eventually the two men would start talking and would slowly become close acquaintances. Norris would teach Bittaker how to make jewelry, and twice Bittaker saved Norris from attacks by other inmates. What kind of jewelry? Are we talking necklaces and stuff? You know what? They weren't that bad looking. Like, they knew what they were doing. And where are they getting this material? Well, they probably were able to buy it at, like, the... So there's beads at Commissary? I don't know. I hope so. I think that's amazing. Maybe in the 70s after hippie life, hippie love, pride time. Peace and love. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so after about a year of getting to know each other, the two men's friendship became, became set in stone when they began to share some of their deepest fantasies with each other. They made each other friendship bracelets. I'm convinced. Uh, they probably did. They were like, <laughs> and it says like BFF. BFF. For. BFF LB. E- yeah. <laughs> BFF RN. For right now. Yeah. No. <laughs> Roy Norris and Lawrence Bettaker. LBRN. B- BFF. For right now. <laughs> for right now. Because we're in prison. And clearly after prison. We're never going to speak. Prison um, BFF. Yeah, prison BFF. So, um, again, so like I said, after about a year getting to know each other, their friendship became set in stone. And they started to share a lot of their deepest fantasies with each other. Which, oh, again, in prison, are. it's really, I mean, it's not unusual for people to become friends in prison. And then become lovers. And that's not even unusual just because it's who you're around, right? So for sure. What is unusual is for inmates to share their dark fantasies, especially the fantasies that these guys had of raping and killing women and girls. And most of the time people wouldn't share that because they would get murdered or listen. If there is ever a time to share fantasies of raping children and women. It's in prison where you fucking belong. <laughs> and where, yeah. Well, but they say that it's unusual for inmates to do that because your deep fantasies are the biggest weapon against you because they will use, whoever you oh, talk yeah. to will use it against you at every chance they get. So they should. again, the fact that they didn't do that to each other really shows this strange connection that better current <laughs> That they had. were besties. They were besties. They were ride or dies. <laughs> God damn it. They don't end up that way, trust me. But No? Yeah. Good. I hope they poke each other's eyes out. Both would openly discuss their interest in sexual violence. Norris, Norris told Bittaker that he found that the frightened look on women's faces extremely arousing when he was raping them. And admitted, I want to punch him. And admitted that this is why he committed so many sexual assaults. Oh, I want to know how many because we only talked about like four. I want to know how many he committed before that. Just saying. But, like, the fact that you get off on women's terror, like, you're another level of human garbage. Oh, yeah. Like I said before, it's not uncommon for inmates to form friendships while incarcerated. However, it is rare that they plan to continue this friendship outside of prison. And in the case of Norris and Bittaker, 
They not only planned to pursue a friendship, but they also made plans of everything they would do upon being released. Oh my god, they're like the next Thelma and Louise. Wait, were they, they like criminals? I never actually no, watched they that movie. I think they were just women. That, Bonnie and no, Clyde. I've, I've never even seen Bonnie and Clyde were criminals. I've never seen Thelma and Louise either. We should watch it next time. Why don't we watch it? And then we'll do a full <laughs> review on here. We literally um, are Thelma and Louise. <laughs> yeah, we literally are we? We don't know. We might not. We don't know. We might not be at all. You might like, regret all saying that. All I know is they drive off a cliff yeah. or something. I would never do that with you unless you really, really needed me to. <laughs> See, that's how I know you're my bestie. Yeah. You'd have to give me a real good reason. All right. So I would, would do it, but I would have to have a good reason. <laughs> I'm curious like, as to what's a good and reason. And I'd be like, okay, you convinced me. Let's go. You know what? Done. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. That was a great reason. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, Bitterker and Lawrence would spend their time together behind bars, meticulously forming a plot to kidnap, rape, and murder girls. And not only that, their plan involved killing a teenager for each year. So, starting at 13, (gasps) all the way up to 19. No. That is sick. Sick. Bitterker was the first to be paroled in October of 1978. He would head back to Los Angeles and find work as a machinist. And he was very successful. I'm not sure what kind of machinist he was. I think it's sorry. That was my phone. What I want to know is, so no one in the prison heard this conversation and reported it to someone who could have maybe not granted parole. I think they were very much kept to themselves while doing this, made sure nobody else was around. They were really, they did speak about it after to other inmates, but. Unreal. Unreal. Someone should have never, ugh, ugh, okay. Yeah. So Bitterker would head back to Los Angeles and he found work as a machinist and work that he was seriously successful at. He was making like $1,000 a week, $1,000 a week. That's more than I make in a week now. Can you imagine how much that was in 1978? Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. He got to know quite a few people upon his release, and they all thought of him as being a helpful, generous neighbor. However, Bitteker was most interested in forming relationships with local teenagers, mainly young girls. Ugh. He would make sure to always have pot and booze on hand to share with these young friends, and would invite the teenagers to the par- to party with him back at his motel room where he was living. And there is a documentary that I watched about this called um, The Toolbox Killer, um, we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but it focuses mostly on Bitterker. And um, there's a lot of um, women that are interviewed, or there's a few women that are interviewed in this that actually spent time with Bitterker during this time <gasps> and described him as being, you know, nice to them. But he knew them. So we'll get there later, but it just, yeah, he, they all thought he was generous and and that it was harmless. But to keep in perspective too, he was in his late 30s at this point, hanging out with teenagers. Ew. Oh, Regardless gross. of if they're male or female, it's, why are gross. you hanging yeah. out with teenagers? Well, and you know the teenagers are like, ooh, you got weed and alcohol? Let's go. You know, when I was at Fan Expo a few weeks ago, I was standing at the ATM, and there were these girls behind me, and they were probably about 15 or 16, and they were talking, and they were like, I don't know what led up to them saying this, but the one girl was like, you know, I'm friends with so-and-so and and he's like 28. 
And she was like, and she was like, yeah, like I'm friends with uh, whoever. And, and he's like 24 or 25. And I leaned over to Rob and I was like, one day they are going to wake up and all of a sudden realize that that 28 year old and that 25 year old were fucking pedophile. Child I would I would have turned around him and like, girls, do we need to have a talk? Yeah. Like, Auntie Rachel's here. We're going to have a talk. <laughs> like these old men that are hanging out with 15 year old girls there is something wrong with them. Let's evaluate the situation. Find friends your own age. If you are 28 years old and are friends with teenagers. Stop it. Stop it. Yeah. Man, woman, leave, anything leave in the between. Leave the children alone. Stop it. Leave the children alone. Find friends your own age. They're out there. I promise. You'll find your weirdo that you fit in with. But leave the kids alone. Whatever you do. Yeah. That yeah. is my... PSA. PSA. Anyways, where was I? <laughs> so he would always have pot and booze on hand to share with his young friends, and he would invite the teenagers to party with him in the motel room that he was living in. Part of the plan he had concocted with Norris in prison relied heavily on this as Bitteker was socializing with these teens as a form of doing, like, recon or, like, planning and preparing he was trying to establish what was the most effective way of luring young girls and gaining their trust. How to make them feel relaxed around That's you, you know? Disgusting. How do I groom these little girls? Yes. Ugh. Gross. So Norris was released in January of 1979 and would end up moving in with his mother in Redondo Beach, which I was surprised about when I read that. I was like, Sure, she never wanted you, but I guess now as a now as an adult, as a felon, yeah, I guess I don't, I don't know. He found work as an electrician, and soon he would contact Bitteker by letter sent through regular mail, snail mail. You even believe that? I miss somebody sending a letter in forever. Sometimes I go to my mailbox and like open it with great enthusiasm, and then there's nothing there but bills. Yeah, like, I just want a letter. I keep getting a bill for somebody named Shimoni, and every time it comes through, Shimoni. I always go, <laughs> Shimon. <laughs> I put it in the mail. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I got another one for Shimon. <laughs> and then I stick it in my return to sender thing, that, and then I take them all down as bulk. <laughs> Maybe we have 100 letters for Shimoni. <laughs> Anyways... In February, the two would reunite at the motel Bitteker was living in, and their murder plan was reignited. Hmm. Bitteker came up with the idea to buy a van, and the two combined no. their money and would purchase a 1977 silver GMC cargo van that they would nickname the Murder Mac. No. You know what? I'm glad it's not white. However, is this where, like, the whole... Don't get into a van, kids, comes from? No, that is a different case, and we cover that one one day. Okay, but, like, this is, like, stealing off of that case then? Because, like, don't get into the van, kids. I don't think it's stealing off that case, but, I mean, don't get in the van. Like, the whole thing about the white van trying to kidnap you, like, I think that's just, like, a kind of a stereotype sort of thing because so many people have used it. But I think there is a specific case that the white van was very prevalent in and so yeah well either way still don't get into this silver van kids because now the murder mac it had no windows in the back which i can't believe that's the name yeah no it's because the mystery mobile was taken i'm just kidding that's not why they just wanted to name it that 
So it had no windows in the back, which would make concealing their what they were doing even easier. It had a large sliding door on the passenger side, enabling them to easily open the door just a slight way Grab and drag uh, and drag people from the street into the vehicle without Night. being detected. Like nightmare. Nightmare. Yeah. Now, they fitted the back of the van with a mattress. They put in a cooler for drinks and a toolbox with a variety of instruments that they could use no. to subdue their victims. And that's why they're the toolbox killers. Yeah. Oh, I hate this so much. The toolbox included a large sl- sledgehammer and a pair of pliers, which we will later find uh, out is Bedeker's no. favorite tool. No, 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 no. In the, bo- in the book, The Toolbox Killers by Jack Rosewood, the author writes, they had created a mobile torture unit, a vehicle <sighs> so nondescript that they could drive around without creating attention, the ideal killing wagon for serial murderers. Oh my god, I really, really, truly hate that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also picturing a nondescript killing mobile, and the decal is quite interesting. <laughs> like one that is descript? Yeah. You mean? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm picturing a descript van. What would it be? Tell well, like, it. you know, like it would have like slasher across the <laughs> decal. <laughs> blood dripping like the decal blood like a like a halloween van driving around i'm picturing (laughs) to me i would feel like that was less scary than just a nondescript van to be honest i guess so yeah because you're like oh what spirit halloween are you going to yeah i would be less (laughs) suspicious of a vehicle that just said serial killer van on the side (laughs) than i would be of one that was completely blank yeah yeah hiding in plain sight if you will yeah (laughs) quite literally over the next few months, Bitterker and Norris would drive the Pacific Coast Highway conducting surveillance of the local girls at the beaches there. And one thing I learned is that the they would go mostly to like around Hermosa Beach, which if you guys are 90210 heads of the original series like we are, <laughs> Hermosa Beach is where Kelly and Donna's beach house is in no season way. four. And throughout the rest of the series. Yeah, that blue apartment building they live in is on Hermosa Beach. They would flirt with the girls and take their pictures many times without them even knowing. They would even pick up some of these girls, but they would let them go. These were just practice runs where they were finding the best way to get young girls to kind of let their guards down. Come on. Before they went and committed went ahead and committed their first actual kidnapping. Like they're doing research on best ways ways. to kidnap girls. Oh, I hate them so much. Now, the matter of finding the perfect location to carry out their vile acts was also an important task that needed to be completed before they could start their murder spree. In April, Bitterker and Norris discovered an old fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains that they thought would be just remote enough and provide them with, like, the isolation that they needed to carry out what they were going to do. Now, this is an area just north of Los Angeles County, and it's west of Interstate Interstate 5, which is an infamous stretch of highway due to the large number of serial killers that have lurked along it. Awesome. The the most famous of which is Randy Woodfield. Now, side note from Wikipedia, straight from Wikipedia, just so everyone knows, I'm quoting this directly. (laughs) Randall Brent Woodfield is an American serial killer, rapist, kidnapper, and robber who was dubbed the I-5 killer or the I-5 bandit by the media 
due to the crimes he committed along the Interstate 5 corridor running from Washington, Oregon, and California. Before his capture, the I-5 killer was suspected of multiple sexual assaults and murders. Though convicted in only one murder, he's been linked to a total of 18 and, su and is suspected to having killed up to 44 people. And to that I say, he sounds like a great guy. <laughs> Just kidding. He sounds awful. And I, honestly, I kind of have heard, like, maybe the I-5 killer, I think. There's so many interstate killers out there of different numbers. Um, I can't specifically remember the name Randall Woodfield. But it piqued my interest, and now we're going to cover him. Not right. right now, but in the future. I mean, we just so. about did cover him right we now. We just about did. I gave you a brief synopsis Footnotes. of who he is. Cold yeah. notes. The mountain had a bit had a lot of big canyons, making it extremely difficult to travel by foot or by vehicle, and Bitterker thought that this would not only be a good place to carry out their crimes in total isolation, but also as a body disposal site. He believed that due to the number of wild animals that roam the mountainside, oh. any remains disposed of on the mountain would be destroyed or removed by the likes of bears, coyotes, and other little furry creatures that have no idea that they are getting rid of evidence. I hope that while they're out there, they get eaten by bears and coyotes and other little furry creatures. Because... Well, spoiler alert, they don't. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wish they did too, but they do not. What a plot twist that would be. Yeah, sure the girl tells the story. I was in the middle of getting murdered, and this bear came and just showed them, <laughs> and then looked over his shoulder and winked at winked. me after he ate them. It was a female bear. It was yeah. a mama bear, and she yeah. said, "Girl, I've got you." <laughs> I really wish that that's what happened, but it sadly mm. did not. In my version, it does. With their plans all in place and their trial runs carried out with success. Bitterker and Norris will put all of their plans into action in June of 1979. On June 24th, 1979, 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, or Cindy as I've heard her referred to in many sources, she was walking home from church at around 7.45 p.m. when she was spotted by Norris and Bitterker. They pulled up beside her in their van and tried to get her into it by offering her booze and pot, but she declined. Yeah, so, she's coming from church, so yeah. thankfully she had that on her side. So the pair drove away, only to park a little way ahead. Now Norris got out of the van and pretended to be leaning in to get something. Uh, mm. So he had just like his top body was in top of his body was in the van. She could see yeah. his legs, and that's it. And when Lucinda got close to the van, Norris turned around and grabbed her, dragging her into it oh. and slamming the door. Bitterker drove away, and he turned the radio up to full volume to drown out Lucinda's screams. Oh, come on. While Norris got to work tying Cindy, Lucinda's legs and arms, and he would use duct tape to gag her or cover her mouth. They then made their way up the fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. When they reached their destination, Norris would tell Bitterker to take a walk while he savagely raped Lucinda. Oh, come on. After he didn't want an audience? Like, why? Like... The, no. Oh, what a coward. I mean, like, it's, you know what I mean, but like, yeah, I know what you mean. After about an hour, Bitterker returned and Norris went to the van while Bitterker rapes uh, Lucinda. Mm. When he finished, Norris raped her again. During the attack, Lucinda asked Norris if they were going to kill her. And if they were, could they just give her some time to pray? Oh. At this point, for some reason, Norris told her that they weren't planning on killing her. But then the two killers argued over whether or not she should survive or live. The decision was imagine? yeah. The decision was eventually made to kill her. Obviously, Norris tried to strangle her with his bare hands, but he apparently could not handle it and ran off and vomited. 
Thinnaker then took over the task of killing Lucinda. He used a wire hanger from the van and twisted it around her neck with a vice grip until she died. Oh my god. They never allowed her her one and only... What's that? Rest in peace, poor Lucinda. They never allowed her her one and only request, which was to pray, before they carried out her murder. They wrapped her body in shower curtains and threw her over a steep canyon. You know what? She was praying that entire time. It didn't matter if they gave her time. She was praying that entire time. At Carvana, we're in the business of driving you happy. And with the widest selection of used cars under $20,000, you're bound to find a car that'll put a smile on your face. Carvana gives you control by letting you customize your down and monthly payments. You can browse tens of thousands of cars online to find one within your budget, and you won't get surprised with any bogus fees. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to shop for a vehicle. Carvana, we'll drive you happy. Availability may vary by market. Just two weeks after the murder of Lucinda Schaefer, 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. And now, before anybody gets judgy, and I'm sure none of our listeners are, but just in case, hitchhiking was a completely normal, regular occurrence in the 70s. Yeah. She was doing what literally everyone everyone else was doing. Yeah. Not saying it's a safe habit, especially nowadays, now that we know the dangers of it. But at the time... It was completely normal. Um, so this was on July 8th, 1979. She was spotted by Norris and Vitaker, who slowed down to offer the young woman a ride. Unfortunately, before they could make that offer, Andrea would be, or unfortunately for them, I should say, not Andrea, before they could make that offer, Andrea would be picked up by another motorist. But with determination, they would follow the other vehicle to Redondo Beach until Andrea exited the car stop it they couldn't just let this poor girl go like the hell they have no oh my god i'm i keep calling her andrea and i apologize i think it's andrea i apologize for that (laughs) you're stuck in 90210 yeah i think so with norris in the back of the van bitteker pulled up along andrea and offered her a cold drink from the cooler in the back it was a really hot day so she accepted the drink and as she reached out to take it from bitteker Norris jumped out of the back of the van and dragged her inside. Oh, my God. She was bound by her wrists and ankles and gagged with tape. Norris and Bitteker drove Andrea to the fire road in the mountains and took turns raping her before Bitteker forced Andrea to walk naked up a hill and perform oral sex on him. Wait, he would what? also demand that she pose for Polaroid pictures. At some point, Norris would take the van to the store to get some more alcohol, leaving Bitteker and Andrea alone. By the time Norris returned, Bitteker was now all by himself, and Andrea Andrea was nowhere to be seen. Uh. Bitteker told Norris that he had stabbed Andrea in the ear with an ice pick. <gasps> he then rolled her over and stabbed the ice pick into her other ear, this time stomping on it with his foot. That is some horror movie shit. shit. Shockingly, Andrea was still alive. No, so don't say it. So Bitteker strangled her until she died and then threw her body over a cliff, just like he did with Lucinda. Oh my god, just the pure thought of surviving ear picks to the e- uh ice picks to the ear just horrifies me. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, on September third, ni- Andrea or Andrea. Shit. Rest in peace, Andrea. On September third, nineteen seventy nine. 
Jackie Gilliam and Leah Lamp were sitting at a bus stop. This one kills me, just so you know. They all are awful. This one particularly kills me. They were sitting at a bus stop at, at Hermosa Beach. They had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway when Bittaker and Norris spotted the girls. Jackie and Leah would be the youngest victims of the toolbox killers, with Jackie mm. only being 13 and Leah oh. being 15. Oh my gosh. Norris and Bittaker would offer the two girls a ride, and they did accept. They offered them weed and booze, and both girls partook in the festivities with the, the two older men. But soon the girls would realize that something was very, very wrong when they noticed that Bittaker was driving in the wrong direction. And how scary as a 13 and 15-year-old to notice something is wrong, you know? Like, oh. terror. Oh my god, yeah. but that's what he likes. Oh no. Okay. When the girls brought up the fact that they were going the wrong way, the men tried to convince them that it was all okay. However, Leah wasn't buying this, and she tried to open the van door and leap out. But before right. she could, Norris hit her on the back of the head with a bag of weights. Oh, lead weights. God. This would knock her unconscious, and when she eventually came to, Norris was in the process of binding Jackie. Oh. So Leah tried again to escape from the moving van, and this time she did make it out, but Norris quickly jumped out behind her and was able to subdue her and drag her back to the van. And knowing that they were in view of potential witnesses, Bittaker put the van in park, got out to help Norris. He would punch Jackie in the face for some reason, and I don't know why, because she was bound in the van. Yeah. In the van. And then they would get back in and drive up to the mountains. Like, how brave is this little girl to try to jump out twice? Twice. Brave. Yikes. The two girls were raped repeatedly by Norris and Bittaker. But unlike the two previous victims who were murdered the same day as their abduction, the men would keep Leah and Jackie for two whole days. Oh, In which they suffered repeated attacks in the forms of both physical and sexual abuse. Bittaker would make Leah walk up a hill where he would take pornographic Polaroids of her. And when he brought her back to the van, he would instruct Norris to do the same thing with 13-year-old Jackie. Oh. During one of the times that Bittaker raped Jackie, he would end up stabbing her with an ice pick on her breast and tore off a piece of her nipple with a pair of pliers. Oh my god! Bittaker would end up strangling Jackie after stabbing her in the e- each ear with an ice pick. Why is that his go-to? That's this is when, just one of their signature things, I guess. Leah was later killed by Norris, who used a sledgehammer to strike her on, struck, strike her on the head several times, while Bitterker strangled her at the same time. Ugh. Both of the girls' bodies were thrown over a cliff. I just... On October 31st, 1979, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford was standing alone at a gas station after leaving a Halloween party. Now, she had been getting a ride home with some friends when she got into an argument with the driver apparently over money, which resulted in her getting out of the car and choosing to make her own way home. No! Oh my god, imagine how bad her friends feel. Oh, jeez. Norris and Bittaker pulled up beside the girl and offered her a ride. Mm-mm. Now, she accepted because she actually recognized Bittaker as a regular from, I believe it's McDonald's that she worked at part-time. Oh my god, and because he was grooming! Ah, oh, gross! Okay. As they drove, they offered Lynette some pot and booze, but she declined. Then Norris pulled out a knife and threatened the young girl before tying up her legs and arms and gagging her with a piece of tape. I keep saying gagging, but they just covered their mouths with yeah. tape. I don't know why I'm using that term, but or why I put that in here. So sorry, guys. I'm 
that's my bad. This time, Norris and Bitteker would change places, and as Norris drove the van, Bitteker took to torturing Lynette in the back. Mm. He beat her and shouted at her, telling her to scream louder as he uh, hit her repeatedly. He would inflict the worst kind of torturous injuries on her using a variety of tools, such as his favorite pair of pliers, and use these tools while raping and sodomizing her. Come on. The worst part of this is that these two monsters captured the entire terrifying ordeal on audio tape. They used a a cassette tape to record themselves. And I hope that cassette tape was used as evidence and nailed those efforts. We're going to get there. Trust me. Bitterker can be heard shouting at and assaulting, sexually assaulting the young victim and physically assaulting, by the way. While she pleaded for her life in the 17-minute long recording. Oh, come on. At one point, Norris and Bitteker switched places, but because Lynette's body was too battered to rape at this point, because he had used the pliers to rape her and sodomize her. Oh, God. um, Norris used a sledgehammer, and he would hit her in the elbow 25 times. Wait. The same he elbow. Hit her in the elbow twenty-five times with a sledgehammer. That is some twisted shit. There would be nothing left of her elbow. That's I, some twist because hitting your funny bone, man, that is another kind of pain. Mm-hmm. So like hitting your elbow with a where the frick did they come up with this? They're just very That's sick, twisted. Sick that's people. that's beyond twisted. By the end of the recording, Lynette can be heard asking the two men to just kill her. Yeah. Now, the tape of Lynette Ledford has never been released publicly due to its obviously horrifying contents. However, the transcript can be found easily. No. With a Google search. I highly recommend not reading it. Absolutely not. Because even if you're just reading screams you know what that scream is like Uh -uh. Mm -mm. uh-uh i've read it no you did not it is the thing of nightmares i read it for the research i'm not gonna read any of it here none of it it was in the book that i read for this like i said you can find it easily um erica what are you doing for self-care because (laughs) this is this is too much i literally watch comedies okay good i watch 30 minute sitcoms we're actually like halfway through friends right now which is nice like, on a rewatch for, like, the eighth time, probably. Um, but, yeah, this this transcript is, is, and I think this is why I literally am terrified of these people. You know that feeling you get in your stomach when all of a sudden you feel like something is very wrong? Yeah. I felt that. that reading intuition. It. I felt that. Re- I felt that twinge in my stomach. And I have really? read a lot of shit and seen you a have. lot of shit. You have. Like I said, I got through that Junko Furuta one, or Junko Furuta. It was horrible, obviously. You guys probably have listened to that one. It was awful. But something about, especially that transcript, I just, no, don't read it, guys. Avoid it. This isn't me being like, avoid it, but then also do it. No, avoid it. Yeah. Avoid it. It's a thing of nightmares, like actually. Yeah. If Erica's telling you this. (laughs) The torture of Lynette Ledford lasted for about two hours before Nora oh. strangled her to death using a wire coat hanger and a pair of pliers. 
Prosecutor Stephen Kay would later state that the coat hanger found around Lynette's neck was wound so tightly that it was the size of a silver dollar. What? What? You can see my... So it's literally the size of her her um, spine. Windpipe. Yeah. Yeah. It's the size of... You can't get any smaller than her spine. So it would have cut all the way through. Oh my god. Rest in peace, you poor angel. Instead of dumping her body in the mountains, Bitteker thought that this would be a really fun time to mess with the police, and they took her body to a place a little bit more public. They, they randomly selected a house and left Shirley, or left Lynette in the front yard in a patch of ivy. What? She was quickly found the next morning by a passing jogger who quickly reported the discovery to police. An autopsy was conducted in the injuries that this poor uh, girl suffered were horrific. Her wounds were as follows. She had compression marks on her neck, mm-hmm. blunt force trauma to the head, face, and breasts, petechial hemorrhages, tears to the vaginal and rec- rectal lining, Ugh. multiple fractures of the elbow, and puncture wounds and lacerations on her hands and fin- fingers, Ugh. likely defensive wounds. Yeah. Leaving Lynette Ledford's body so out in the open would be the start of the slow unraveling of this pair, Thank but the God. police still had little to go on and had not yet connected the four, the other four murders to Lynette. Did they find those bodies? We'll get there. Okay. But there was one victim that escaped, that the they she escaped the pair with her life, and this, along with other witnesses in their own stupidity, would prove to be what led to the eventual capture of these two absolute Good. monsters. Shirley Sanders was in California visiting her father when she was spotted walking home by Norris and Bitteker on September 30th. Now, this was a month before the murder of Lynette Ledford. Mm. The pair pulled up alongside her and asked if she wanted a ride, but she declined. Unsatisfied with being rejected, Norris pepper sprayed her in the face. What? Before dragging her into the van, and then he raped her. Ah. For some reason, they let her go. Or she escaped, more like, and their guards were down. And because they were somewhere, they weren't in the mountains, they could have been detected by witnesses, so they just drove away. They just, they didn't fight with her like they did the girls? Right. Wow. So she reported the attack to the police, but because she couldn't identify her attackers and was unable to get a license plate of the van, there was little the the police could do. Hmm. However, she did remember that the van was silver, which would be... Very important later. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a hot tip. Yeah. After the this victim escaped, Norris and Bitteker would lay low for a while, but at some point in October, so before this is still before Lynette Ledford was mm-hmm. murdered, Norris would run into an old prison friend. Now, I've heard different names for this friend, so I'm just gonna call him the old prison friend. Okay. Just so that I don't misname this person. He would tell the prison friend like he would end up bragging about the first four murders oh while he was chatting up with his former buddy and the prison friend he didn't take Norris seriously at first but then the body of Lynette Ledford was discovered and after watching the news he realized that the injuries that Ledford had sustained were very similar to the ones that Norris had described inflicting on the other victims mm-hmm. yes the prison friend went on, went to the local police, his local police, to tell them what he knew. Being an ex-con himself, and he, I think he was also a rapist. Um, I mean, 
good for him, good on him for doing the right thing, but this was not a, a good guy himself. Right, right. So the police didn't really take him seriously, but they did refer him to the Hermosa Beach Police Department um, yeah. because this is kind of where this prison friend thought that um, these murders had taken place near. Right. So they told him to go there. And as luck would have it, this would be the exact right place for him to go. And when he oh. reported what he knew to Detective Paul Bynum, alarm bells went off in Bynum's head. Especially when the old prison friend mentioned the silver van. Uh-uh. Bynum was the officer that Shirley had reported her rape to. Oh, and thanks. told him about the silver van. And he remembered that. Oh, the and, stars aligned. You yes. know, finally for once. So another officer ended up interviewing Shirley Sanders, this time showing her pictures, like in a photo lineup kind of thing, yeah. to see if she could identify Bitterker and Norris as her attackers. It only took her a couple of minutes, but she quickly pointed out the two men, and the officers knew that they were onto something really wow. big. With the testimony of the old prison friend and the positive photo ID by Shirley Sanders, Paul Bynum took the case to DA Stephen Kay, who coincidentally actually remembered Roy Norris from when he had prosecuted one of his former rape cases. Oh, come on. Stephen Kay thought at this point that the best course of action would be to put the two men under constant surveillance in order to collect as much evidence as possible and to ensure that they would have like an ironclad case against them. Wait, so if they're in constant surveillance, how did they murder another person? They didn't. So this is after the murder. So... The old prison friend, he didn't take Norris seriously oh, at first. Right, 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 right. Then right. saw it. Then saw, saw it on the news. Got yes. it, got it, got it, got it. I'm, I'm caught up. <laughs> yes. On November 20th, 1979, Norris would be caught selling pot. And since he was on parole, this was a direct violation of his parole conditions, and there was no choice but to arrest him. Good. Bitteker would be arrested shortly after, and the two were charged with the kidnap and rape of Shirley Sanders. Good. Norris was the first to be questioned by police. Stephen Kay and Paul Bynum led the questioning, and it wasn't long before Norris started to confess to the crimes. He, of course, started out by denying anything or and everything, but he would eventually confess. Oh, he confessed? Uh, of course, he would point the finger at Lawrence Bitteker, stating that Bitteker was the one in control and was responsible for the deaths of most of the victims. However, he did confess to bludgeoning Jackie Gilliam with a sledgehammer, and using that same sledgehammer to beat Lynette Ledford's elbow. He was also able to give investigators little tiny details that only the killer would know, such as the fact that Cindy Schaefer was walking home from church, and that when they had abducted her, she lost a shoe as they were dragging her into the van. Mm -hmm. There were other things that he could give them as well, like tiny details and stuff like that. Um, so they they thought he was a fairly reliable witness here. Norris would take investigators to the sites on the San Gabriel Mountains, where he claimed the pair had dumped the bodies of their first four victims. He was unable to accurately identify where Cindy Schaefer and uh, Andrea Hall's remains were located. And the police thought that this could be for a number of reasons. Norris could have forgotten, or just like the pair had hoped for, animals could have moved the remains from where they were originally placed. Mm -hmm. Not That wouldn't surprise me. Again, there are lots of animals up there that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. They don't know that they're interfering with a crime scene, right? They so. see food. Exactly. Exactly. On February 9th, 1980, the remains of Jackie Gilliam and Leah Lamp were discovered by investigators near a dry riverbed at the bottom of a canyon. Uh. Jackie's skull still had the ice pack embedded in, <gasps> embedded in it when it was found. O-M-G. 
Now, even without having all four bodies, investigators believe that they did have enough evidence to prosecute both Norris and Bittaker, especially after a search of their properties and vehicle turned up over 500 photographs of young girls, <gasps> some of which included Andrea Hall and Jackie Gilliam. In the van, they found the tools used in the murders, along with necklaces belonging to two of the victims. Oh my god. I just don't and understand why they take photographs and, like, audio. Like, that's going to be used against you, now, you idiots. Because they knew that the police had, were on to them, or Bittaker knew, he did try to destroy as much evidence in the van as they possibly could. But the most disturbing piece of evidence that they found was forgotten in the tape deck of the van. Stop. How did and, how? And that was the tape of Lynette Ledford. They now, just forgot it. They forgot it. And the reason why it was in the tape deck, Rachel, was they weren't just listening to it. Bitterker would drive around masturbating to it. You got to be kidding me. I. Yeah. <sighs> and he would listen to I it over and over and over again. And if it's like you're horrified by it and you've seen a crap load of things. And this guy's masturbating to it? Well, he made it. This is like his art. No, I know. But to listen to it back has to be a different experience. And like... And for him, it was a good one. Because he's fucked. Just, I... I want to kick him in the dick. Same. Her voice would later be identified on the tape by her mother. Mm. Which I can't imagine. No. A mother and listening. No. Oh, I'm, oh. I, I know I bring up my cats a lot, but when Lily lost the, the use of her legs, Rachel, and we would have to move her to the, the litter box or move her yeah. to the, from place to place, like, to eat. And every time we picked her up and she would go, like, she would whine. Aww. I died. I can't imagine how, what Lynette's mother would have went through. Not. The two are not comparable at all, but as a cat mom, watching your cat go through, that killed me inside. Having to hear that tape. I could, I could. You would be dead, dead in like. You, I don't know you, how she you ever cannot recover from that. Yeah, I believe it was her that said she worked two jobs, a day job and a night job, so that she would never have to sleep. Oh my god! Yeah. Holy shit! That poor woman. That yeah. will haunt. She'll hear that in her mind for the rest of her life. On okay. whenever it's a quiet, she'll hear it. Whenever it's loud, she'll hear it. Whenever she's trying to sleep. Oh, this poor woman. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Investigators were able to identify the two male voices on the tape as Norris and Bitterker. Norris had also taken a bracelet from Lynette Ledford to keep as a souvenir, so he was able to hand that over to police as evidence. Now, Norris would end up striking a plea deal with the DA office in return for turning state's witness against Lawrence Bitterker. The deal would mean that Norris would not face the death penalty, or would he face life without parole what? in return for his testimony? F that. You're getting life and parole without parole and your testimony. Like, you have no choice. Norris would plead guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree mur- murder, and one count of robbery, and two counts of rape. And this would be on March 18th, 1980. So his trial was like one and done, bingo, bango, nothing. A psychological assessment was carried out on Norris after his trial, and the psychologist reported that Norris can realistically be regarded as an extreme sociopath whose depraved, grotesque pattern of behavior is beyond rehabilitation. Yeah. Despite this, 
Norris would be sentenced to 45 years in prison with the possibility of parole. What? He would, he would however, die in prison in the year 2020 at the age of 72. Dude, two years ago? Two years ago. He actually believed, because in the documentary I watched on this case, one of the documentaries I watched called uh, The Toolbox Killer, um, she, the, the, the reporter that was in it said that he had actually believed that he was going to get out. And so when she talked to him, actually, you know what? This wasn't in that documentary. I actually listened to so strange. So, so random a podcast. Do you remember Chris Jericho, like the wrestler? Yeah. He has a podcast and he interviewed this journalist. So this is where I actually heard this. (laughs) And um, so random. I know. But um, she said that she had talked to Roy Norris on the phone a couple of times while doing research for her clinical study that she was doing because she's a criminal psychologist and she was going to write a book about it and he said absolutely not you do not have my consent I'm going to get parole I'm up for parole soon and this motherfucker thought he was gonna get parole anyways he when he told her you do not have my consent she said it's the only time because she interviewed a lot of serial killers during her like clinical studies that she was doing Mm -hmm. and um she said it was the first time she ever got mad at a serial killer and like obviously furious because she knows in her line of work interviewing these guys that you've got to keep your cool you got to you know like separate and compartmentalize and separate your feelings about their crime versus what your work is yeah. and why you're there and yeah. she said that was the first time she ever got mad as soon as he said you do not have my consent to write this book she was like well guess what none of those girls you murdered had your consent to do what you did to them either. yeah like i'm give a fuck about yeah. your consent buddy nice yeah. try so your consent's the least of my concerns so he actually believed that he was going to get paroled and that's why he wouldn't give consent because he didn't want to have the publicity on him. Oh, and he actually please. kept a very low profile after being sent to prison, um, which we'll see is a, is a vast contrast to like um, Lawrence Bedeker. But yeah, he, he really. I'm glad he lived his life in like the rest of his life yeah. in jail though. Like, you know, he didn't get the easy out of a death penalty where they kill you after, I mean, 20 years probably still, but yeah, you know, he 70, you lived a good, I'm sure not great. Like I hope it wasn't a little cush life in jail. Yeah. So Bitteker on the other hand, refused to make a deal and would ultimately go to trial in January of 1981. Now Norris would be the star witness for the, for the state. And of course, Bitteker's entire defense was mainly just pointing the finger back onto Norris. Listen, though, I gotta say, if you were my ride or die throughout this whole thing, and now you switch the script and you're going against me, bruh, our friendship, I'm throwing those friendship bracelets out. Well, you know what, though? They did communicate via letter throughout their entire time in prison. It's very strange because they did flip on each other. Yeah. Throughout this, like, after, like, when they were in trial, and they communicated regularly. You would no longer be my bestie. No. Well, Norris would state that Bittercore was the one calling the shots. Now, in the book I read, when they talk about team killers, uh, it's always very obvious who, like, the dominant one is. And with Bittercore Mm -hmm. and Norris, it's always been kind of a mystery because Norris is usually, or sorry, Bittercore is usually looked at as being the one in control. And they think that that's because... Norris is the rapist. Norris is the rapist and right so Bitteker was always looked at the as the one being in control but what Jack Rosewood points out in his book is that this could be because he spent so much so much time in the public eye 
really putting himself in the spotlight, talking to the press, doing interviews, mm-hmm. you know, really sticking him, he his head the out there. He was the face of the team. Because, spoiler alert, he does go to prison. He gets the death penalty, which we'll get to. But he had nothing to lose. Right. Do you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. Norris kept his head down because he thought he, he was going to get parole. Yeah. Exactly. So Norris, and Norris also had that really, really high IQ, which, sure, he was really smart. Did he have common sense? No. Absolutely not. He which was we book will find smart. out. His street smarts were no. next to nothing. And we will find that out in just a second as we go on and talk about his trial because he is an idiot. Okay, cool. Now, uh, Bitterker would take the stand on a, in his own defense. And when asked about the murders, he said that most of the girls, they were there willingly. They'd agreed to sex. They wanted their photos taken and he was going to pay them. Oh, yeah. Everyone you just know, agrees to torture all the time. Disgustingly, to prove this point, his defense lawyer used the photos of Andrea Hall that were discovered during the investigation, that Polaroids that they had taken yeah. of, like, the Polaroid. These photos, it appeared that Andrea was smiling in these pictures. You're going to be told to smile. I've seen the pictures. They're not graphic by any means. But she looks like she's smiling. That's true. However, you're being told they're going to kill you. Yeah. Smile or you the die. easy grin you're, on my face. The disgusting. Fuck? Disgusting. These now, defense attorneys, man, they gotta... How do they sleep at night? I don't know. In buckets of money. Yeah. Bitteker claimed that he had made a deal with Andrea to have sex with him for $200, and as part of the deal, she would pose for these pictures. He claimed that Andrea and Norris had, at one point, gone for a walk, and then Norris returned alone. He had no idea what happened to Andrea after that. Oh, it just happened. Yeah. Norris just left with her and then was like, no, she left. We just happened to be in the middle of this mountain. No big deal. Yeah. So Bitteker, basically, I think what he's saying there is like, she went for a walk with Norris and then never saw her again. I know, I'm innocent. Norris yeah. must have killed her. I was just taking uh, pictures. Yeah. He claimed also that 13-year-old Jackie Gilliam had made a deal with him to have sex for money. Oh, yeah. It's right up her alley. Again, after engaging in their totally consensual sex according to Bitteker. Well, Jackie, and that's where you're wrong, sir, because a 13-year-old cannot consent to sex. So, exactly. Joke's on you, fucker. Got he yourself. said that Jackie and her friend Leah disappeared with Norris again. Never saw them after mm. that. So, this is why I say he's pointing the finger back at Norris. He's like, mm-hmm. well, Norris was there. I did this stuff. We did it for Listen, money. It was consensual. And then I Norris went for a walk with them. That's yeah. all I did. Yeah. When asked about the Lynette Ledford tape, he said that it was just play acting and pillow talk. The, um, and that she imagine. had never actually been tortured. Just talking to the microphone right here. Pretend you're... Yeah. Frick off. She too was last seen with Norris, according to Bitteker. Mm-hmm. When the tape of Lynette Ledford was played in court, the jury, lawyers, detectives, and spectators were horrified now there is footage from outside the courtroom that day of people running out of the room as though they were the ones being tortured oh my gosh that's how bad it is like yeah now i'm gonna play you a clip from the oh. news not of the tape okay not of the tape you scared I do me have there about, for a second i do have a one minute clip from this particular news broadcast and um yeah i'm gonna play it for you guys right now and you can hear just some of the reaction of the people that were in that courtroom it was the most devastating testimony the jury has heard the agonizing screams of teenager lynette ledford as she was being tortured in a moving van the accused lawrence bitteker showed no emotion as he listened his eyes fixed on a transcript of the tape 
The jurors concentrated on the transcript as if to try and block out the screams. It was too much for one member who wept. A spectator rushed from the courtroom. It was more than she could stand. The NBC artist Elizabeth Williams also had to leave briefly. The tape recording lasted 11 minutes. Then Thomas Fredericks called a recess. Some spectators had waited days to hear their objections. Now those spectators wish they hadn't. I've heard things before. I didn't. I didn't. I thought I'd be able to sit and listen, but I've never heard anything like that in my life. What did you? I have a daughter, and I just, I just could see her, and I just, I couldn't take it. Oh my god! So and that's that... what the mom had to hear. What these people did you hear at the very beginning there, like the scream? Yeah. So that is the only actual like public part of that recording that's ever been released. It's just like piece of the news clip where you can just hear that one snippet of it, and it's horrifying on its own. That that person was coming out of the yeah the yeah you could hear like the door like the that and then shuffling out that bang you heard at one point yeah um if you actually watch that video that is the court um artist or like the the person who when he said she had to leave the room, yeah. she ran into a garbage can on her way out the door. Oh, it Just sounded ran, like it ran was into like it a, and knocked it a, over. Like something that they were puking in. Yeah. Fell. She ran into it and knocked it over on her way out the door because she was so... And sorry, I kind of hit the mute button a couple of times by accident, so... Oh, I, I don't sorry think that it kind of went bloop, bloop, bloop. Yeah, I know. I, I think you heard everything. I it was 1980s but... recording. Anyways, uh, it got the gist of what... But yeah, people were fucking horrified. And I'm telling you, do not read that transcript, whatever you do. Like, I can actually hear that scream still. Yeah, of like, it's scary. And, oh my god, I can't imagine that mother who had to sit through. Oh my god, I'm yeah. so sorry. Side note about the tape. The actual recording of this tape still exists. It's in storage at the FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. And the tape is actually used to desensitize new recruits during their training when they enter no. the FBI Academy no. thing when they do training. Most people who have ever heard the tape can't listen to it through to the end. A criminal psychologist by the name of Laura Brand, who interviewed Bitteker at length while he was in prison, said that she listened to 30 seconds of the actual tape and still has nightmares about it to this day. Scott Glenn, he was an actor who played the character Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs. He was given the tape by John Douglas while preparing for his role in the film. He played an FBI profiler in the movie. After listening to just a portion of the tape, he broke down in tears, vomited, and said that he didn't believe in the death or he didn't believe in the death penalty before, but after hearing Lynette Ledford screamed, he had a swift change of heart. Oh my god. Like I yeah. just I'm actually still I can still hear that little tiny snippet just of a that scream little bit of and it, like yeah. imagine that ex like exponentially 17 minutes long. The the court spectators and the jury um, the lawyers and every, well, the lawyers have probably listened to it like several times. Um, actually Stephen Kay said that when they played for the defense, the tape, yeah. yeah, that they asked him to turn it off and he said, no, the defense lawyer yeah. asked him to turn it off because he was disgusted. Like he yeah. was disturbed Well, fuck it. you. Look who you're defending. And the other defense lawyer got up and left the room. One of them vomited. And then one of them. Stephen Kay, the prosecutor, didn't see him again for three months. He took a leave. Well, and I hope that they reevaluated their lives as defense attorneys. And then here's this Bitterker. He's probably got a boner. Oh, I'm so (laughs) mad. I know. 
Bittaker's trial lasted for three weeks, and when Prosecutor Stephen Kay made his closing arguments, he apologized to the jury and to the spectators that he could only ask for the death penalty, and that unfortunately, there was no legal way to cause Bittaker the same pain and suffering that his victims felt in their last moments of life. Imagine that that's the death penalty, though. Like, you know, you can choose, like, execution, death by firing squad, um... The chair, the needle, whatever. But imagine you, like, as a defense or a prosecutor could pick, I wish to duplicate this crime. Yeah. After three Mm. days of deliberating, the jury returned with its verdict. Verdict. Guilty. Mother. Bittaker was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, five counts of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, one charge of sodomy, two charges of forcible oral copulation, one charge of conspiracy to commit murder, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. Now, the conspiracy to commit murder was because they had already planned, well, they had planned all this out beforehand, for one, and then they had already planned more. They had, like, girls picked out. They knew who they were going after. And they had actually bought, um, they had somehow gotten acid, and what their plan was, was to start using acid to put into their ears and into their eyes, and so that they... They their senses would be all fucked while they were getting all this torture done to them, right? They Listen, if I'm going to be tortured, please get me high on acid. No, not that kind of acid. Acid, acid. Oh, like to put like in their burning ears in acid. Yeah. I thought we were on the drug train here. No, they were not leave. the drug. Acid, acid. The other weird plan they had was to put acid into water guns and hand them out to kids at the beach. And sit back and watch and laugh while kids were fucking decimating each other with water guns full of acid. That's like, outrageous. What the fuck? What? Until they realize those kids are going to come with angry parents who are going to whoop your ass. <laughs> like, what the damn hell? No kid is at the beach alone. They got dads. They yeah. got angry mothers. They're going to whoop your butt. Like, I don't understand. It's yeah. such a weird plan. Like, no. we're going to do all this to the women. And I, I, this is who they are. They're sexual sadists. They're doing this. But then that one, it was just like, came out of left field. And I was like, but what? No. <laughs> I'm really confused. Anyways, they never got a chance to do that because they were arrested. Good. Now, two days later, the jury went back into deliberations to decide whether or not Bittaker should get the death penalty. Yes. And. It only took them an hour and a half to make their decision. 15 minutes tops. And that's only because we took coffee orders at the beginning. Bittaker was sentenced to death. The judge would also impose an alternate sentence in the chance that the death penalty was ever abolished in the state of California or if something ever happened. Mm. And that sentence would be 199 years and 14 months. Just for <laughs> you know what? We're not going to call it 200 years and two months it's 199 years and 14 months i'll tell you that much (laughs) (laughs) bitterker would of course appeal his convictions but they were all dismissed and bitterker would actually appeal you son of a bitch (laughs) like on what grounds so he would actually go on to file he was like clifford olson he would file a bunch of really weird lawsuits well because he had nothing to do what else are you doing on death row you know, um, so researching lawsuits the, to file. Apparently, one of the lawsuits that he filed against, because uh, he was sent to San Quentin Prison, and one of the fi- lawsuits he filed against the prison was that he got a broken cookie, and it was like <laughs> cruel and unusual punishment. Anyways, he he eventually would become known as a vexatious litigator, which is somebody that just files they, for bullshit. 
files for bullshit suits um, and waste the court's time. And the only way he would be able to ever file a lawsuit again would be if, like under special circumstances, like that a judge has to review everything yeah. and then decide. So he wasn't able to file uh, any more lawsuits after that. Imagine <laughs> Mr. Christie, if you could file a lawsuit for every broken cookie, yeah. <laughs> like he'd be living in the court. Yeah. So Bittaker's first execution date was set for December 29th, 1989, which of course he appealed. But on June 11th, 1990, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the decision to execute, and the new execution date was set for July 23rd, 1991. It's crazy. It's crazy. The 90s. No, yeah. Bittaker would never see the death penalty, though, because he would die on death row at San Quentin Prison in 2019 after spending over 40 years there. 2019? Like, these guys just died a couple years ago. That is effed. Side note. Lawrence Bittaker was in prison with many famous people who you all might know, including Charles Manson, Scott no Peterson, shit. No shit. Um, Scott Peterson. Night Stalker. That's yeah. the new one, right? That Scott it's not Scott. the new one. I mean, like he murdered. He was the one that murdered his pregnant wife. Lacey. Yeah. It's oh, not new. Yeah, yeah. It's like early two thousands. But yeah. Okay, but like to be in with the seventies guys. Yeah. Uh, Richard Ramirez was there. Um, oh my god, I had a list and I. I took it out of my notes thinking I'd remember it, but there were a lot. If you look up San Quentin prison and the famous serial killers there, you'll be like, okay. Yeah. There's a lot that were there. And he was like friends with a whole bunch of them. Apparently how as ever much he could be friends. On death row. Like they're having parties. Oh, that makes me sick. Yeah. (laughs) They're not having parties, but I get what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) He also used to like sell things. Like he used to like, there was one guy and I can't remember who I wish I had kept my list of shit, but like one of them like was getting a haircut, one of these other serial killers that was really famous. And um, he like took a lock of the hair and tried to sell it. And then this other one found out. So then he was like, you can't come to my birthday party because you sold my hair for money. Uh, <laughs> Basically, like, you know what I mean? Like, we're not friends yeah. anymore. They used to be friends. And then I think it was like Bonham. You tried to profit off my hair. Yeah. Bonham? Does, I, I can't remember. Wait till you see what I'm getting for your underwear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Over several interviews with Laura Brand in the later years of his life, Lawrence Bittaker would eventually end up taking responsibility for his parts in the crimes. And although he never fully confessed to everything he did, it appeared to her, at least, that he was beginning to grow a conscience. Um, Bull crap. Now, there is, you've got to watch that Toolbox Killer documentary because there is a clip of him on the phone with her crying, what have I done? What have I done? My God, what have I done? You brutally murdered five fucking little women like get out of here yeah however prosecutor stephen k believes that any attempt at empathy that bitterker showed in his last weeks of life were were more for himself than anything else they weren't for his victims he did not care about his victims he had cancer oh well it was terminal Stephen K. believes that he was faced with, that Bitteker was faced with his own mortality, and in his final moments, he was scared to death for his own life. Good. And I hope he saw the devil in his final moments. I hope and he did the too. devil was like, think, like, not fingering him, but you know, like that come hither. I hope he was fingering him. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, the devil was like, <laughs> you're right. coming to me now. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And the devil's like, it's too late. It's too late. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris are, to this day, known as two of the most disturbing sexual statists, but like I said at the beginning, 
John Douglas and other seasoned profilers at the FBI have ever had the pleasure of coming across in their entire careers. That's and crazy. again, just to put this into perspective, um, John Douglas has interviewed the likes of Edmund Kemper, Ted Bundy, Richard Ramirez, Charles Manson, and some of the worst of the worst. So like all of you them. Can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And these, oh God, I can't imagine what that tape is like because like, and what these people are like, they're scary. Well, monsters. yeah. Cause like if you're like Ted Bundy and Charles Manson, like how many, so like we're talking like, and I don't want to be like rude quality versus quantity here. Right. Like, these guys didn't murder that many, but it sounds tr- like comparatively, it's just what? Ugh. And like I said at the beginning, Stephen K had the recurring nightmare. So Stephen K, the prosecutor, would have this recurring nightmare that he would hear the screams of the victims over and over again, but would never be able to reach them in time. He said that of all the cases he has worked over the years, and again, Stephen K prosecuted Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. This is the one case that never left him. Wow. And then again, Paul Bynum, the lead investigator, sadly took his own life. And in the suicide note, cited the toolbox killers as the reason. Oh, my god! So that just goes to show you how scary these two fucking psycho, sadistic, sexual status were. Like, it's And like I said, they even gave me a nightmare. That's very hard to do. Very hard. Really? I mean, even when I got, like, elbow deep in Jeffrey Dahmer way back. All yeah. I did was have a dream that he was at a party I was attending, and he was just there. And I woke up and I was like, "That's weird. I need to take a break from Jeffrey Dahmer." <laughs> yeah, yeah. This one, literally, I I couldn't sleep. I haven't been affected by this in this way since I listened to this podcast called Hunting Warhead, which great podcast. If you guys ever Ooh, choose to listen to that, ready yourself. Yes. Um. But yeah. Wow. Now, despite continuous searches that are still happening to this very day, the bodies of Lucinda Schaefer and Andrea Hall have never been found. Wow. So, yeah. And that... they're still working on my, like I said, those searches are still going on so that those families can have closure. Yeah. Now, that is the t- case of the toolbox killers for episode 25. And wow. Guys. I've cited this a couple of times. There is a really good book about this that I used for my research. It goes really deep, even deeper than the crimes, into the psychology of these two fucking monsters. Um, it's by Jack Ro- Rosewood. It's called The Toolbox Killers. Sorry, Jack Rosewood and Rebecca Lowe. Yeah. Um, called The Toolbox Killers. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Um, really good documentary that I mentioned a bunch of times called The Toolbox Killer. Uh, criminal psychologist Laura Brand. She's featured in it throughout yeah. she talks about her experiences with Lawrence Bedeker which are really interesting I didn't go into it much in this but it's it's really interesting to see the relationship that she formed with Lawrence Bedeker over the years wow and like how hard would that have been oh, to yeah. like talk to this man willingly knowing yeah how garbage he is it's really interesting to to watch her and listen to her experience so I, I really recommend that I'm going to put that in the show notes I watched it on in Canada on the Hey You app, but I think it's available in the States on Peacock or Apple TV. Okay. So I'm going to link the Hey You one for our Canadian listeners, but you can find it on those other um, sources as well. Uh, and then I watched another one in it. I found it on YouTube. It was called The Devil and the Death Penalty, and it was really interesting. I'm going to link that in the show notes as well, just on YouTube, and it's a good watch. So it um, gives you a lot of information. Those those three sources um, 
uh, especially. So really check those yeah. out if you want to go deeper into this. I know it's a horrific case, but to me, it's very interesting. And where I know that they are, you know, sort of well-known, the Toolbox Killers, I know people know about them. They're not as well-known as some of those other bigger names. And I'm surprised by that because of a lot of the the psychology that is behind mm-hmm. this in terms of teen killers, sexual say or yeah, teen killers, sexual sadism and, and all of that. So I mean, check out these other these sources that I, I'm putting in there. And I don't know if you want to mm. learn more about them. It's they're really good sources. So, yeah. Okay. And here's where I'm going to take over. Let's actually have a serious conversation about some self-care tips. Because <laughs> if everyone, like this guy, like committed suicide over this crime, yeah. let's uh, provide some real concrete self-care. And I know we had, you know, a bunch of laughs during this episode. And I think that's a part form of self-care in itself method of self-care method of make of compartmentalizing Absolutely. in a kind of way and and really helping to process those really negative thoughts that yeah. i was having anyways that's how i was seeing it so yeah so you know go out and watch some comedies like you mentioned earlier take a bubble bath a nice walk it's crisp weather it'll be nice for the lungs nice for the skin um what else can we do we can read a book listen to uh, other podcasts that are more lighthearted, maybe like RuPaul's podcast is really good, called What's the Tea? <laughs> um, what else can we do for some self-care? Watch your favorite shows, drink some hot cocoa. It's pumpkin spice season if you're into that. Gross. But yeah, <laughs> lots of self-care. Yes. I recommend. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, sorry. What did you even say? I know you don't watch John Oliver, but they always do this thing every pumpkin spice season. They have this thing called and it's like this like heavy metal, like hard pumpkin spice latte. Hang about PSLs, and it's really funny. That's hilarious. Sorry. Go on. You know, this is the 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 um social worker. Social workers. I'm sorry, Rachel. You're like my Chandler Bang. I'm not really sure what you do, but I know it's important. <laughs> um, Could I be any more obvious? <laughs> see, and find a good friend to have laughs with because that yes. is the best kind of stuff. Where you guys Laughter is the best medicine, always. All right. Whatever guys, happened they- to Reader's Digest? Is that still a book? I would assume That was more so. like Laughter is the best medicine. They had like a page of jokes. It was really good. That was my parents' toilet book. Same. That's where you read the jokes. I always would read it on the on the jar. Yes, hundred (laughs) percent. A stack of them every month. Yeah, hundred percent. Frick, we lived the same lives. All right, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for sticking with us for twenty five episodes. Here's to twenty five more and beyond. We love you all so much. If you want to follow us on Instagram, you can do that at StoryCrimePod. If you want to send me an email, you can do that at StoryCrimePod at gmail.com. And if you want to help support us and the podcast grow and be better and wonderful, you can do that at Buy Me a Coffee. And I've put the link in our show notes. Also, guys, don't forget to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or we're also on Good Pods now. So if you want to give us a rating on there, that would be five amazing. Five stars are best. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> give us five stars. But if you still think we can improve, tell us that too. But make sure you hit that five star. 
yeah we'll listen yeah. to your to your criticism your constructive we criticism. love the constructives um again we love you guys and thank you for listening and we will see you next time yay happy 25 Bye. Woo.